long story about what Paul did when he came back to Jerusalem, uh, perhaps for the last time, certainly for the last time in Luke's narrative. So we heard how Paul met with the elders of the Jerusalem church. They told him, prove yourself, go to the temple. In the temple, a riot started. He was driven out. The door was slammed behind him. Luke takes pains to record. And the people started this riot and tried to beat him to death. He was rescued by the Roman soldiers who then gave him an opportunity to speak to the crowd. We looked at that two weeks ago, Paul's speech to the crowd that made the crowd even more angry. So the Romans then said, well, let's examine this guy by torture and find out why he makes everyone so angry. Paul says, I'm a Roman citizen. So that leads to him being examined instead by the council of his own countrymen, the Sanhedrin. They gather, and Luke records Paul's interview with the Sanhedrin here at the beginning of chapter 23. Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, for you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? Those who stood by said, Do you revile God's high priest? Then Paul said, and I'm sorry to do this to you two weeks in a row, but last week Paul said, I am a citizen, I have lived as a citizen till this day, here in verse 5, it's not a past tense. Paul did not say what your translation says, I did not know that he was the high priest. It's a present tense. Paul said, I don't know that he is the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of the ruler of your people. So Paul denies the high priesthood of Ananias. I don't know that he is the high priest. And then he quotes this scripture verse. So we'll talk about that. When Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men, brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided, for the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. Then there arose a loud outcry, and the scribes who were of the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man. If a spirit or angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. And when there arose a great dissension, the commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him into the barracks. But the following night the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem... So you must also bear witness at Rome. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the boldness of your apostle to testify to the risen high priest who is ruler over the people of God. We ask that you would help us to have that same boldness to confess Christ as high priest and as ruler and to obey him as such, to live as citizens of his kingdom, to live as holy ones of his flock, whom he has consecrated as priest. Help us, Father, to see the glory and majesty of your Son. We pray that you would
free us from distraction. Open my mouth. Help me to speak boldly and accurately your word to your people on your day in your house, we pray in your Son's name. Amen. Well, the popular interpretation and the one that I subscribe to, reading this text, always growing up, is that this is a Romans 7 moment where Paul does the very thing that he hates. He's a hot-tempered apostle. He's been through a lot. He just about got beat by the Romans. Now he has to go talk to the Sanhedrin. And when he gets hit in the face, that's too much, and he mouths off. And then he apologizes. Sorry, everybody. Sorry, shouldn't have done that. Let's move on. That Romans 7 interpretation, I think, is flawed in a number of ways. First of all, how does it contribute to Luke's narrative? What is Luke doing here? Luke is showing us the kingdom of God. He's showing us the certainty of the kingdom. He's showing us Paul in Jerusalem defending himself against uh, false charges. So Paul is defending himself here and in the next three or four chapters that in one sense it doesn't strengthen Luke's case to say, well, while Paul was defending himself, he sinned. Also, unlike in the gospel where the disciples are constantly doing the wrong thing, Luke does not show us the apostles in Acts constantly doing the wrong thing. In fact, he's showing us the apostles constantly setting a good example and showing us what we ought to do. So, in terms of narrative cohesion, thinking of this as a Romans 7 moment where Paul gives in to his worst impulses and has to apologize doesn't really fit with what Luke is doing. But also, when we understand this as something that Paul doesn't apologize for, as a direct statement where he curses the high priest and thus the Levitical establishment that he represents and quotes scripture to justify himself by repeating again, I don't know that he is the high priest. That fits with Luke's story very well because Luke has taken us back to a key location, the temple, and returned to a key theme that he pursued for the first six or seven chapters of the book, which is who is worthy to rule the people of God? Who has access to the temple? Who rules God's people? Remember, we saw that in Acts chapter 3 with the beautiful gate and Peter and John breaching temple boundaries and coming into the temple through that gate and then having a showdown with the rulers of the temple over who is allowed to rule God's people. Well, Luke is rehashing that theme here, and I find it extremely unlikely that Luke is going to bring it up again and say, but this time the apostle apologized for treading on the toes of the temple administrators. And the apostle recognized that Ananias had a perfectly good right to control access to the presence of God in the temple. I just don't see that happening based on everything that's in Acts 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7 where the apostles fight with the temple leadership over the question of who has control of the temple, who stands, who opens the gate to admit people 
in. So here Paul has been driven out, the gate slammed behind him in verse 30 of chapter 21, and now he is taking the fight on a rhetorical level to the high priest, and he's saying, the real issue here is the kingdom of God and the high priest of God, Ananias, you fail on both counts. You don't control the kingdom of God. You are not the high priest of God. In fact, you are cursed in Old Testament terms. You are that whitewashed wall from Ezekiel 13 that will crumble. And I will be left standing. And then finally, the final point in favor of this interpretation is what? Verse 11. Jesus comes to him after this interview and gives Paul an attaboy. Good job, Paul. Testify like that in Rome. Now, if Luke has recorded something where Paul is sinning and apologizing, then it's a little odd that Jesus would come and endorse that and say, that's right, Paul. Do that. More of that. Go ahead and do that in Rome, too. So, for all these reasons, I no longer think that this is a Romans 7 moment. I'd call this a Colossians 1 or Philippians 3 moment, a supremacy of Christ moment that Paul is having when, under divine inspiration, he curses the Levitical system represented by the high priest in his corruption and instead says, you ain't the high priest, you're not the ruler of the people of God, my master is. And when you understand that Jesus' right to rule and serve as high priest flows from his resurrection, you will understand why Paul rejects the high priesthood of Ananias and prophetically places the whole Levitical system under that curse. So with that in mind, let's go back and just do a slight bit of review. We already read both of these texts tonight, but Revelation chapter 1, where... In verse 5, what does John say? From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, so Christ is prophet, the firstborn from the dead, Christ is resurrected one, and ruler over the kings of the earth. What does he associate there? The right of Christ to rule, the kingdom of God, is based on the resurrection of the Son of God. Put into, uh, what, different terms we can say that it's very clear that the king of terrors, the greatest enemy of the human race, is death. As I always say, right, death is the number one killer of people. Well, the one who can beat death is the one who is worthy to rule the human race forever. That is what Jesus did. He is our champion. He is the one who defeated our greatest and our worst enemy. And therefore... As the resurrected one, he rules the kings of the earth. Then Hebrews 7, which we read a few moments ago, says the same thing about the priesthood of Christ. His right to be priest is not based on uh, biology as a descendant of Levi. Rather, his right to be priest lies in the power of an indestructible life. So, the kingship of Christ is predicated on his resurrection from the dead. The priesthood of Christ is predicated on his resurrection from the dead. 
And Paul, of course, before the council says, this is the real issue. The real issue is the resurrection from the dead. Verse 6. So if the real issue is the resurrection from the dead, kingship and priesthood flow directly from that issue. Whereas Paul shooting off his mouth and then having to apologize does not flow directly from that issue. In one sense, of course, either way you interpret Paul's prophetic curse, you can say, Luke is showing us that Paul is dedicated to keeping the law. And when he breaks the law, he apologizes and makes it right. That could very well be true. Well, it's certainly true that on either interpretation, Paul is devoted to keeping the law. I think the interpretation that says Paul spoke correctly is a superior explanation because it ties together these three themes that Luke highlights, the kingdom of God, the high priest of God, and the resurrection of the Son of God. Paul starts the discussion, as we saw last time, with a reference to the kingdom. Paul looked hard at them and said, men, brothers, so he still calls them brothers, even though they want to kill him. I have lived as a citizen in all good conscience before God until this day. And we reviewed last week why he doesn't mean I've lived as a citizen of Rome in all good conscience, but I have lived as a citizen of the kingdom of God in all good conscience. So Paul says, I am a kingdom citizen. The first issue here is the kingdom. Who do we serve? Who is our master? I am an example of a good citizen of God's kingdom. My conscience is clean on that score. To use the language of modern evangelicalism, Paul comes in there and he opens by saying, I have been saved for decades and I've lived like a Christian the whole time. Not a claim that's going to get a lot of traction, which it doesn't. Ananias says, hit him on the mouth. This was not a light slap. I don't know whether Paul actually spat teeth on the floor with a little bit of blood after this slap, but we can imagine that he probably had some dental bills after this strike on the mouth. This was not a light, oh Paul, don't say such things. But a serious, you talk like that in here, we're going to bash your face in. So they strike him on the mouth. His claim is violently rejected. Notice that even though he has every right to start by claiming obedience to the law, which he partially does by talking about a good conscience, but the central issue that he brings up is living as a citizen. The central issue is the kingdom. Who is our ruler? So then, the second issue that comes up is the high priest. Paul immediately responds to being struck like that by saying, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. So a prophetic curse uttered against Ananias and the Levitical system that he represents. You sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? Well, where does the law say, don't beat the prisoner under interrogation? The answer is in Deuteronomy 25, which reads, If there is a dispute between men and they go to court, 
and the judges decide their case, and they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked, then it shall be, if the wicked man deserves to be beaten, the judge shall then make him lie down and be beaten in his presence with the number of stripes according to his guilt. What does the text say? You are beaten after you are convicted of a crime. You are not beaten before you are convicted of a crime. The beating happens after the conviction. So Paul's mind immediately goes to this passage in Deuteronomy and says, I'm being beaten before conviction? This is totally contrary to the law that you in this court pretend to follow. So he's not to be beaten while testifying. He's to be beaten after being convicted. Paul then refers to Ezekiel 13 by using the term, you whitewashed wall. Go back to Ezekiel 13. Ezekiel has this long passage about the whitewashed wall that Paul invokes to describe the Levitical system in his day. Oh, where should we start? So, verse 10, or verse 9, My hand will be against the prophets who envision futility and divine lies. They shall not be in the assembly of my people, nor written in the record of the house of Israel. So, the false prophet is kicked out of the people of God, nor shall they enter into the land of Israel. So, the themes that Paul has been accused of, the people, the law, and this place, God hits all three of those themes and says, that's true, those are important themes, but that applies to the false prophet. Then you shall know that I am the Lord Yahweh, because indeed they have seduced my people, saying, peace, when there is no peace. And one builds a boundary wall, and they plaster it with untempered mortar, Say to those who plaster it with untempered mortar that it will fall. There will be flooding rain, and you, O great hailstone, shall fall, and a stormy wind shall tear it down. Surely when the wall has fallen, it shall not be said, Where is the mortar with which you plastered it? Thus says the Lord God, I will cause a stormy wind to break forth in my fury, and there shall be a flooding rain in my anger and great hailstones in fury to consume it. So break down the wall you have plastered with untempered mortar and bring it down to the ground that its foundations will be uncovered. It will fall and you shall be consumed in the midst of it. Then you shall know that I am Yahweh. Thus I shall spend my wrath on the wall and on those who have plastered it over with whitewash. And I shall say to you, the wall is gone and its plasterers are gone along with the prophets of Israel who prophesied at Jerusalem and who see visions of peace for her when there is no peace declares the Lord Yahweh. So God says false prophets will be kicked out of the land. They'll be written out of the people. They will not enter the assembly. They are a whitewashed wall that will collapse in the day of God's storm. So Paul appeals to that text to say, Ananias, you are a whitewashed wall. You are the false prophet of Ezekiel 13. And you will meet the doom of the false prophet of Ezekiel 13. And in fact, Josephus tells us that Ananias fled during the days of the Roman invasion, that he was found hiding in a culvert pipe and was dragged out by some other Jewish partisans and butchered in the street. 
The curse of God is not pretty. Seldom is. And it certainly wasn't in Ananias' case. So Paul curses him, and that curse comes to pass shortly after this, maybe 10 to 15 years later. So that is the second issue that then arises. After Paul curses Ananias, those who stood by said, Do you revile God's high priest? Paul has sucked the air out of the room with this prophetic denunciation. The rest of the assembly is stunned that he would dare to use such language. You said that to the high priest? Don't you have any respect for this Levitical system? And so, verse 5 This leads all the commentators to say, come on, Paul, you know all this about Judaism and you can't recognize the high priest. You don't recognize his robes of office. You don't know who you're talking to. What's going on? That's all beside the point because Paul doesn't say, I'm sorry. Paul doubles down by saying, I don't know, brothers. Still the brothers. Even after all of this, He still calls them brothers. He's trying to be conciliatory, but at the same time, he is not giving any theological ground. I don't know that he is the high priest. Now, that's a direct denial. It's a little nicer way of putting it than saying he's not the high priest. We've all said it. I don't know that that's true. Meaning... I know that's not true. Like my grandfather says, if somebody tells you, I don't know about that, what they mean is, I do know about that. Well, that's what Paul does here, and it should be translated in the present tense. I do not know that he is the high priest. You all call him high priest. Rome calls him high priest. Fine, but biblically speaking, he is not high priest because you shall not speak evil of the ruler of your people. Leviticus 5. Why does Paul quote that verse? Because he's saying Ananias is not the ruler of this people. Rather than saying, oh, I just violated the law, just like the people I'm I'm complaining about, Paul is saying, The law says not to speak evil of the ruler. And Ananias is not the ruler. Jesus is the ruler. He is my king. So, I am not violating scripture. I am affirming scripture. Ananias is the one who cursed the real ruler of our people. By smiting me on the mouth when I said, I am a citizen in good conscience of the kingdom of God. So that, I think, pretty well shut him down. One would imagine that after, after those words, the, the Sanhedrin might try to seize the initiative and ask another question, but Luke tells us that either they couldn't, they were dumbfounded, or they simply didn't have time because Paul sits there looking at them in the aftermath of this devastating Bible verse that he just quoted. 
You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. And he throws another grenade into the proceedings to say, okay, we've rehashed, we brought up the kingdom, we brought up the priesthood, now let's talk about the resurrection of the dead. Because you're in two factions. There are Republicans and Democrats here. I'm a Republican. No, he doesn't say it in terms of our politics. He says it in terms of theirs. I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Certain commentators have complained, what is Paul doing? Jesus certainly couldn't have ever said, I am a Pharisee. Well, no, fair enough. Jesus was not a Pharisee, but Paul was a Pharisee, and he's not afraid of the label even here at this point in his career. He will say, look, this is my home. I grew up. I was educated by you people in your institutions. I was and am a card-carrying member of a faction of Judaism that is represented heavily on this council. I'm a Pharisee. My dad was a Pharisee. And as a Pharisee, I believe in the resurrection of the dead. Now some have said, some commentators look at this and say, well, Paul felt bad about what he did in verse 3 to curse the high priest. And so now he just kind of doubles down and throws a bombshell into the proceedings to, to get himself off the hook. That is not what Paul is doing. He's not just saying, why don't you guys go fight each other? He's saying, I'm here concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead. That is the point of this trial. Do the dead really rise or not? Pharisees, stay with me. You've said for centuries that the dead will rise. That is one of the core doctrines of our party. Paul is appealing to his fellow Pharisees and saying, I'm not teaching anything weird or strange or different. This has been one of the key planks in our platform for a very long time. Don't abandon me on this one. And some of the scribes actually actually stand up and say, he's not wrong. There's nothing wrong with the guy. Maybe he heard it from a spirit. Maybe he heard it from an angel. They have to be laughing with that Jewish humor because they know that the Sadducees don't believe in spirits and angels. But they'll go ahead and appeal to the spirit and the angel to stick it to the Sadducees just a little bit harder. Something you don't believe in told him this other doctrine you don't believe in. You're welcome. Well, that's what the scribes of the Pharisaical party said. It was a spirit... It was an angel, right? They won't go all the way and say, he's right. Ananias is not the high priest. Jesus of Nazareth is the high priest now. But they also can't totally abandon him and thereby admit that the Sadducees have been right all this time. And so in kind of a half-hearted way, well, maybe Paul is on to something. Maybe a spirit did tell him something that we might want to, you know, look into at some distant point when things aren't so bad around here. They don't, 
they won't admit right away that Paul is totally right, but they can't completely throw him under the bus either. So Paul says the real issue is not the people, not the law, not the temple. The real issue is not even in one sense who is the high priest or whether the present Levitical system is under the curse of God. The real issue is whether there is a high priest out there who is high priest because of his indestructible life. The real issue is whether there is someone risen from the dead out there who is king of the kingdom of God and who is able to admit people as citizens to that kingdom. That is the issue. So hopefully that cleared things up for the Romans who said, oh, that's the issue. The Jews arguing about whether there's a resurrection. A long-standing debate that has been going on for many centuries within Judaism and will continue to go on for many more centuries. We don't know whether the Romans really got that point, but that is what Paul said. So there's much shouting. There arose a loud cry, or actually lots of shouting. The two factions start screaming at each other in a very principled, moderate fashion, no doubt. Again, classic. Jewish people are known for their vociferous arguments to this day. Even old men yanking each other's beards and screaming in each other's faces. Well, that's what Paul does to this august assembly by just bringing up one disputed theological point. Do you revile God's high priest? Well, yeah, I put him under God's curse from Ezekiel 13, but you all don't mind screaming at him. So what's the difference? Paul is probably sitting there thinking that. The Romans come in and rescue him, highlighting that earthly citizenship is a wonderful blessing, returning to our theme from last week. And Luke is also showing us Christians need to be shrewd. Jesus told us to be wise as serpents. This kind of shrewdness is not something that Paul should be ashamed of. This is wisdom. To look at the room and say there are two factions and if I identify with one, they have to back me because they can't go to the other faction. That would be by far the worst outcome in the world is to be known as pro-Sadducee. I can't do that. And so... I have to say, yeah, I believe in the resurrection of the dead. So Paul pulls that card, plays that card, and successfully brings the interview to a conclusion after having said, Jesus rules the kingdom of God, Jesus is the risen high priest, and Jesus is alive. That is what this is about. The issue is, does Jesus live? So that night, Christ stands by him and says, Be of good cheer, Paul. Can you imagine going through a stressful situation like this, being arrested, being almost tortured, being, uh, well, smitten on the mouth in the council, and then Christ comes to you personally and says, That's what I'm looking for. Keep up the good work. You're going on to Rome where you will continue to testify just like this. That's what the Lord does for Paul. He gives him a verbal assurance that he's doing it right. So he did this before. Like in Corinth, Paul was uh, very very worn down there. 
the Lord came to him in a vision and said, you're doing well. Keep on testifying, essentially. Now the Lord says it again. And he gives Paul this promise. You will reach Rome. Don't worry. You will get out of Jerusalem. You won't be stuck here forever. So how can we know the certainty of the kingdom, which is Luke's main point? Well, the certainty of the kingdom is going to destroy the Levitical system. It's going to wipe out the temple, the high priesthood, and all of that leadership. That's one clear thing here. The servants of the kingdom of God are willing to take on the powers that be. Paul doesn't say, they want to kill me, I should play nice. No, Paul says, I'm going to confess the truth loudly. And when he does, Jesus affirms him and says, yes, that's right. And the witness is spreading. Jesus says, you will go to Rome. The good news is not stuck in Jerusalem. It is spreading through the empire. So, don't give up. The Lord who conquered death can and will conquer the Levitical system, the Roman Empire, and anything else that stands against him because he has beaten death. He's the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth, the great high priest, and he's yours. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to be ready to apologize when we sin, if that's what Luke recorded here. But much more, Father, we ask that you would help us to be ready to testify to the risen, ascended Christ. We would not hesitate to claim allegiance to his kingdom, that we wouldn't hesitate to declare that he is the priest of God, and that we would not be ashamed to say that we believe that he died and rose again and sits at your right hand. Father, bring us safely to your heavenly kingdom. Help us to live as kingdom citizens in all good conscience before you this day and every day. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.